Welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guests, Gordon Schmidt and Cy Islam. Thanks to our sponsors, Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners, Worklytics. I know women do that. Like they'll take your like large t-shirts that you would never wear and like use it as a sleeping shirt. Yeah, as a sleep shirt. Yeah. Well, it is right. sort of fashionably correct. Not, yeah, not for real, right? Correct. Well, I mean, like, we have some, like, semi-breaking news, and I know, like, Cole is, like, devastated by this news. He talks about it quite often, but nope. we, we got sad, sad news that the Iron Sheik has died. Oh, I saw that, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of sad, yeah. Kind of hot well, takes, you guys took him out, I think, if I was correct. <laughs> Went to his hospital room. Hulk's done a lot of bad things, but this is the worst, probably. Killing the Iron Sheik. I don't know what that is. What is the Iron (laughs) Sheik? He is a Iranian wrestler from 1980s. And he like represented like all the Middle Eastern bad guys that the US was fighting during that time. (laughs) Not not like the honorable Mujahideen fighters of of Rambo 3. So the the opposite of that. Another thing I haven't seen. You haven't seen Rambo three, Cole? I've seen I've seen the original Rambo. I've never, oh, so- I didn't go that deep. I didn't get that deep cut of the third Rambo. I'll just just basically look at pictures from the late seventies and eighties of who's meeting with the president, and you'll yep. see them spoilers later on, starting Al Qaeda and things. Like that. <laughs> so well, just, I learned something today. The enemy of my enemy ain't necessarily my my friend next week. You know that's that's what you find out. It depends if they have oil or not, right? Well, we'll kick it off with some introductions. So here we got Dr. Gordon Schmidt, professor of management at the University of Louisa Monroe. I know that uh, Cole has some thoughts on that. Uh, He studies uh, uh, researches leadership, uh, future of work, and management education. And Dr. Sai Islam, co-founder and vice president of consulting at Talent Metrics. They have some fantastic t-shirts, which I've seen floating around uh, Psyop. Uh, so also associate professor of Iowa Psych at Farmingdale State College. Uh, together, they've written a book, uh, Leaders Assemble, uh, Leadership in the Marvel Comic Universe. I met both these guys at uh, PSYOP at a Star Trek meetup, and there's like great dudes overall. How's it going, y'all? Good. Doing well. Yep. Good. Doing a lot of Star Trek meetups lately. So, you know, just one of many, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as we learned, there's lots of I.O. in the Star Trek universe, right? There's lots of different things to explore. And we, we can get into like the Marvel comic universe as well. But uh, Star Trek is, on that is topic, great. I think, right? Yeah, the, Star Trek is really great for leadership and, and also for like other I.O. topics, I think. And uh, Gordon, you know, aren't you big like tech guy? Don't you don't you love thinking about the technology with the Star Trek folks? I'm against technology. Ludite. <laughs> you won't catch me on Zoom. Uh, no, no, the, the technology I think is interesting. You know, I think Star Trek is very focused on when it was made, when it's supposed to be the future. So it's all like uh, dials and people handing each other physical book Kindles, basically. Uh, oh, like some of those like show like a, a actual printer, like I'm sure, which was like freaking mind blowing in the 60s, right? Yeah, the, the tech, the tech is an interesting part thinking about what the tech means. <laughs> But like, we we could transition back into like the Marvel universe where I, I know Cole has like more of an orientation there. But uh, like your your book is great. Like I, I I thumbed through it. You got issues like a shared leadership, uh, mentorship, conflict, authenticity, female leaders, like all this sort of stuff, which is gonna be uh, on the forefront 
soon if it's not already here. I'd love to get you guys' take on what led you to do this and how's it going? <laughs> um, so, you know, as I tell everyone, uh, make sure to follow listservs. Uh, listserv was a key part of this because we got an email out to either the HROB listserv that says, hey, there's a new book series at Emerald. It's exploring popular culture, exploring leadership through popular culture. Is anybody interested in doing a book? Submit a proposal. So I emailed Sai and said, hey, we should do a book with this series. Sai said, I haven't even written a book chapter before. And I was like, don't worry about it. Let's do it. <laughs> and so basically we thought Marvel would be a really good fit uh, for this particular type of setup. Everybody knows Marvel. Everybody's, I was going to say everybody's got an opinion. I was going to say everybody loves it, but I think maybe now everybody's got an opinion. But it's also got a lot of those leadership issues built in. Sai and I have done quite a bit of research and talking and, I don't know, yelling into the wilderness without anyone listening about trying to make IO more accessible, trying mm -hmm. to help us test what's going on in businesses versus uh, not believing in stuff that's been going for 30 years that we won't test or try to understand. And so to us, the book is kind of fits into our outreach efforts. It's a lot cooler than most of our outreach efforts, just to be fair. Uh, because more people like Marvel than discussing the need for IO to test business practice. Uh, that's kind of what got us got us on that path. Sai, you've got any other secret origin parts of it? Uh, well, the, the the real secret origin is that the two of us have been using pop culture uh, in our teaching. Uh, and then I've been using it in some of my coaching work uh, just because it's a way to connect with people. And that's one of the hardest things for, I think, IO psychologists in general to do because we probably think in terms of like a journal article We're like well let me start you with the introduction you know 1946 you know yeah. so and so did this study and now let's talk about today but this stuff is it, it really lets students and and executives and just regular people connect with the material in a way that is um fun and kind of easy to think about and it's right there in the in the movies. A lot of times when we're talking about some of our concepts, it's harder to uh, wrap your head around them uh, and, and how those concepts might work. And also sometimes, especially in the consulting side of things, it can be really sensitive for people. Like if you're talking to a leader, you're like, hey, let me tell, tell me about your problems. And maybe they don't want to yeah. talk about their problems, but they can tell you how Iron Man is doing badly. And there's like no <laughs> emotional cost to that, right? There's no sense that, oh, I feel, I feel terrible now uh, about that. Whereas, you know, sometimes that happens with, uh, with coaching clients or in leadership courses where you're, you're talking about that. And then for students, sometimes they have zero leadership experience. Uh, they don't have a sense that they've been a leader, even if they're leading like a student group, they might not imagine that, but they can see that with Captain America, uh, that, oh, this guy, this guy's leading. And so that, that's always been one of the things that we've noticed in that ability to communicate IO is, can we actually get it to a place where regular people can think about it, connect with it, and then take those ideas and maybe actually run with them? Do either of you have like a, a really good illustrative example of a leadership encounter in any of the Marvel movies that is kind of your go-to that you cite in the Leaders Assemble book? Gordon, Gordon, you got one? Because, sure. well, you know, I, th I think we, we each have our favorites, right? Yeah. Yeah, tell your favorites. Uh, I would go with, so I, I have a go-to that I use a lot when I talk about the book, just because I think it's easy to talk about and to imagine. 
Um, and I, I usually talk about Captain America as a servant leader. And when you think of a servant leader, you think of somebody who's literally going to jump on a grenade for their team members. And he, he does that in the first movie. And he does it when he has zero superpowers. It's like before he gets his powers, he jumps on a grenade. And that never changes about Steve Rogers, right? It never, you know, he's always the person that's trying to create a situation where people will, you know, succeed or be safe. And that's always the number one thing for him. And I think it's a great illustration of what we imagine a servant leader to be like. And especially, you know, for students or in some organizations where they don't really do servant leadership, we've, I find that it's very helpful for leaders to kind of think about that example and to reflect on it. Uh, yeah, one that always comes up for me is uh, Captain America Civil War. Uh, and so you've got this fight with the Avengers fighting with each other about how the Avengers should be run. Um, and so there's this idea mm. that, you know, Iron Man is saying that, uh, you know, there needs to be safeguards. We're too powerful without being checked. We need the UN um, to, to sort of run this or General Thunderbolt Ross, which him running, it seems like a horrible idea based on everything I've ever heard. But theoretically, it's the UN's going to run this. It's going to be civilians, right? Uh, and so Cap is like, no, uh, our, our ethics and principles matter the most. We've got to make our own call. Uh, and so you might have a different feeling about which one's correct if you just are given the basic argument. Um, but the important part for me is that the failure to engage in negotiation or conflict management, right, is you've got these two perspectives. They're not that well defined. Um, and we haven't really gotten at the core of the issues. So does, does the UN have to run it just like Tony says, or does the Avengers have to have full latitude like Cap says, uh, they don't. Um, we could have, the UN could help with some elements or members could opt out if it doesn't fit with their values or we could have input or oversight in different directions, right? Um, and so they've got this conflict that if we had gotten to, instead of fighting over it, but it went to uh, collaborating and really understanding our own interests, uh, the Avengers might not have had to broken up. And speaking about leadership in that scene too, is it's Cap, Cap and Iron Man fighting on this, right? What is everybody else's opinion? Um, they don't really try to solicit that. There's no vote. There's no democracy. There's no real attempt to get other views. It's just my way or the highway. And so ultimately people pick Cap or they pick Iron Man. Um, but there wasn't really a need for this if they had really worked through what, what do they really care about? Uh, and to some degree, it's one of the most tragic situations in the movies of bad leadership, right? Mm -hmm. Because the Avengers break up. It affects, to my mind, their ability to fight Thanos and all these things. Uh, when if the, Avenger, the Avengers are kind of broken up for a very long time in this universe because nobody could compromise or no one could really figure out how can we work together on this. Uh, and, you know, the Avengers are a team of these individuals, strong opinions, strong skills. Uh, different perspectives, and we need to find a way for people of different backgrounds, different perspectives to work together, not my way or the highway. Uh, and so I, I think it's a good idea to show it not working, them not doing it. I think that that is fantastic. You guys are definitely way more, <laughs> way deeper versed in the Marvel universe than I am. But like, kind of like at the service level, I'll, I'll reiterate the point that like you guys are like digging into things that I think are going to be on the forefront coming up as 
organizations slim down, everything gets flatter. You have more sorts of uh, leaders controlling either large swaths of team or something I don't see particularly um, uh, well communicated in the leadership literature is this like self-directed teams. Like how do like Fantastic Four, like how do they assemble? But you guys cover it. Any thoughts on uh, where leadership is going, what we're going to see and how we can use these principles to produce better leaders in the future? Well, I'll, I'll cite something that Gordon wrote uh, about virtual ah, leadership, right? Good, so, you know, uh, Schmidt et al. Or, you know, so I, I actually think the, the ability to lead without being in the same physical space uh, is going to be really it's, important. Even it's a though, new skill. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even though companies are, are like, please come back to the office. We've already paid rent for these, this office space. Please come back you know, the ability to do both where you're in the physical space and then you're also in the virtual space is, uh, I think, a really uh, key skill, uh, especially if the trend towards remote and hybrid work uh, continue in the direction that they are. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny, Scott, you mentioned like the leadership literature, talking about things like there, there are too many models, right? Like, like there's too many, you know, approaches to, to leadership and some of the more interesting stuff about like leadership substitutes or even shared leadership, I, I don't know if it gets studied enough or, or mm -hmm. effectively enough. So I definitely think that that you know uh, that idea of virtual leadership and and being able to kind of manage things without being there is going to be really key. It seems like the leadership literature kind of like boils down to just don't be an asshole, right? Like trivial to respect. <laughs> set task, you know, obviously do this yeah. leadership stuff, but like be be kind to your fellow man, right? Well, yeah, Watch. like I think Gordon and I joked about this, right? That a lot of leadership research, we can break it down into like two two areas. One is like task orientation, like can you get the can you get the people to get stuff done? And then are you are you able to manage the social part of it? Gordon, I think you wanted to add something. Well, it's, that Schmidt research is great from what I've heard. Um, <laughs> Um, but I, I do think, you know, I'll, I'll get to a, another topic in a moment, but I do think a lot of work can be done virtually, can be done fine that way. And that's something with like the research that we do and people we collaborate with is like, Sai and I talked at, I think, Sai up 2019, and then we didn't see each other in person again until 2023, this year's Sai. Wow. During those four years, we wrote multiple papers. We wrote the whole, the whole book. <laughs> we, I sent him comic book images all the time on Twitter, making fun of stuff I was reading. Uh, you know, we, our, our friendship developed and strengthened. All these things happened while we were not physically together. And I think the tools are there to do that. The, our ability to connect exists, um, but we actually have to think about it and understand it. Um, because if we don't, then it doesn't work. Because a lot of that is leadership virtually means not leadership just you get an email every once in a while or you find out you got laid off <laughs> right. by email you log in if you can't log in either you forgot your password or you no longer work at <laughs> twitter you know that's that's how it works and again that's all really bad leadership it's bad ways of organizing things um but there's a lot of bad face-to-face -face leadership frankly there's a lot of that as well oh yeah being, historically being, yeah yeah being face-to-face -face doesn't fix everything and i think that that's the panacea these companies are looking at is, oh, out of COVID, people are, they're not as motivated. So if we bring them into the office, they're going to suddenly like look at the beanbag chair and say, I love everybody. 
they're going to start <laughs> playing ping pong again. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And that's what, you know, the solution is not we need people physically here. It's that we need good leadership. We need intentional leadership. Um, you know, I think that's that's part of it. I do think, you know, that idea of shared leadership or working together, trying to get rid of this idea of the CEO that does everything is a big problem um, because the people we uh, we worship uh, in, you know, popular culture and bios, people like Steve Jobs, which I mentioned all the time in these podcasts, is we act like Steve Jobs did everything. Well, Steve Jobs didn't do everything. He looked cool in a turtleneck and sounded like he knew what he was doing, but a lot of the computing was done by other people. A lot of the work was done by other people. He just was that figurehead guy who made it sound cool, right? And who got that mystique. Uh, you know, I think we have the same thing with Elon Musk, right? We all were supposed to think Elon Musk was a genius until he decided to uh, keep tweeting really dumbly and reduce the value of Twitter by, you know, 75% in a few months. And now we're like, maybe he wasn't as smart as we thought, but he had the image. The image of leader looked very well for him. You know, he's rude and crude, but he knows what he's doing. Well, as it turns out, only the first two are true. The last one certainly ain't true for Twitter. Um, and so trying to appreciate middle managers, appreciate people that aren't the manager, but help engage in leadership. That's what we need to do, do a lot better. So I don't know whether we need to just throw out the term leader, frankly and just talk mm. about people working together. Um, I know manager is kind of a dirty word. Uh, you know, in the 80s, we sort of got rid of supervisor because that sounds bad. Um, leaders got a lot of the same issues, potentially. I think it describes something important, but describe talking about leadership more <clears throat> or even just people working together is, is, is better in many circumstances than, oh, I need the big CEO that's going to fix all our problems. Big CEO yeah. might cause a lot of our problems. <laughs> Fix, I'm not sure. Of. No, I think I think you might be onto something there, Gordon. Um, and and going back to kind of something Sai was saying for a second, Scott and I joke sometimes that you know I think I'm the task orientation of the podcast, and he is the social orientation. So we kind of balance each other out in those ways. But I really struggled for a while to to think like, does leadership even exist? And really what I settled on is the only, and this is why there's like, you know, thousands of models of leadership and what is it and what is good leadership, what bad is bad leadership. And the thing I kind of settled on is that the only thing that exists is followership because the only thing that makes a leader is whether or not other people listen to them and follow them, right? And that's a definable behavioral characteristic that you can actually measure. Um, I don't know. How do you how do you all react to that? And does that kind of stuff matter within the context of the book that you wrote or just your outside research on leadership or your coaching practice or whatever? And maybe, Gordon, maybe you go first and then Sai, you can follow up or something like that. Yeah, very so, task oriented, by the way, Cole. <laughs> but I, I agree in a lot of ways. I do think followership is a good way to look at stuff. But to some degree, to me, if we look at leadership correctly, it encompasses followership because leadership is influencing other people, getting them to change their attitudes, their behaviors, their what have you. And when you have a good relationship between people, whether they're leaders, whether they're followers, we're influencing reciprocally people back and forth. So being a good follower to some degree is being a good, engaging in good leadership. 
in a lot of ways. I think followership is one way to sort of flip the narrative of how we talk about it. But I think if we define leadership, the process well, we're kind of talking about followership in a lot of that case. Because right, the, it's your followership skills aren't just, oh, I'm really good at doing what somebody else tells me to do, which I think sometimes that's what followership uh, sounds like. Um, and so from that perspective, I do think part of it is us trying to embrace reality in some ways of how things work. Uh, we need, we all engage in influence tactics on others, right? We're all trying to influence others, but I think influence is a bad thing, right? That's just well, marketers I mean, like, trying to trick us. That's a really, really good point. Like you, not only to be a good leader, you have to like, uh, you know, set tasks and this sort of thing, but there's a citizenship behavior on the leader uh, followers part to take that direction and run with it, be engaged. Yeah. Which we don't talk about that often. And the influence is both directions. So I have that as an academic leader. If I tell people, oh, we really need to do this thing or this way and nobody wants to do it. Well, they're going to influence me to (laughs) reframe it or recommunicate it. Or instead of an email, I go to sign and say, hey, buddy, you know, remember how we work together? Do this thing, right? And that's kind of what we, <laughs> that's kind of what we have to do, right? Is influence bases of power. I think power is that other part where we think power is bad, but power is just having various things that help you to influence other people. Yeah. And so if we yeah. just talked about people more in terms of your ability to influence others, your ability to have power. So knowledge is power. Expertise is power. Relationships are power. And these things, if you have them, you are in, often engaging in leadership by influencing other people. But instead, if we call it your manager tells you this, it's okay, because managers, it's okay for them to try to convince people of stuff. It's okay to call, if somebody's a leader, they can push people to do stuff. But if we as individuals talk about, oh, I'm trying to influence you, or I'm, tr- I've, I'm trying to build power, we think, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're like, you know, like an evil queen in a Disney movie or something, right? <laughs> uh, you're, you're an evil dictator. But that's that, you know, the same thing is true for organizational politics, right? Is we think, ooh, it's bad. It's, it means that bad people are winning. But in a lot of cases, to get things done, you need to have relationships with people, right? Uh, you need to uh, be able to convince people of what's the right course. And so I think if we really embrace a lot more of power, influence, politics, we're all engaging in leadership through those things. We don't need a designated this dude's the one who makes the decisions because he's got a title. And you know, most of the time it's, it's a dude, right? That we yeah. put in this who looks like a leader in our implicit theory of what a leader should be. Some old white dude who has sage wisdom that is going to do a good job, right? Uh, and I think a lot of that, when we don't think about the components of leadership, we get into these even more theories of who deserves it, or we just need somebody with all this power that that's okay. When it's us influencing each other, it's us developing power. It's us engaging in politics. That's really how stuff gets done, to my mind. <laughs> oh, so yeah, actually, one of the most important things I think Gordon talked about there was this idea of power, right? Like, you know, we we conceptualize leadership in the book as influence, and so mm-hmm. influence, since it is a two way street, the followers have to acknowledge that you are actually a leader. Like we've all been on teams where there was a manager that nobody respected nobody thought much of, and nobody really listened to. And so a lot of times when we're looking at organizations, we tend to look at and we say, hey, what's the formal org structure? 
and here's where the power lies here's where the node actually is but in reality the those you know you know french and raven's bases of power you know expertise you know respect you know all of those things they they matter and so uh, followership is important, but it's also important to know that a leader can actually activate those different areas of power. So sometimes you need to be able to say like, hey, this is my job title. I have reward power over you and you need to do what I'm asking you to do. Mm-hmm. Other times you've got to be like, well, I have more knowledge or I'm not sure if I if I should be the one to tell you this. Maybe we need to reach out to someone else. And so that is that that is leadership in in, in a variety of different ways. Right. So when we when we talk about what leadership is, what followership is, it really is that social process and moving away from the idea that people that have formal titles are the ones that are are leaders by default kind of frees us up to talk about more of these influence tactics and to kind of look at things in a more holistic way. Uh, and, and I know, Scott, you were talking about that, that idea of shared leadership, you know, a, a team that is that has shared leadership only functions if they can switch on the leader hat and the follower hat, you know, effectively. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I'm, you know, uh, Star-Lord is leading us this time. Oh no, now it's Rocket's turn. Now it's Groot. So each of these characters, each of these people, they need to be able to switch off from being, oh, I'm following at this point to no, my expertise or my knowledge or my ability or whatever is gonna lead us in that situation. Well, like analogously, like you see this in sports as well. So like you got like, uh, I know so you're a big basketball fan, like mm-hmm. the uh, leadership style, like Greg Popovich mm-hmm. is far different than say like uh, um, Avery Bradley or something yeah. like that. Like what, what lessons can we take away from sports, be it either IO principles in general or leadership that we can apply to other contexts, such as consulting or what have you. I, I was going to just say related to that shared leadership part too. Um, I think it's also teams being willing to, of course, seed uh, leadership, but also who can be help in the moment. Uh, and I think this this plays into sports. I think it can connect to Star Trek as well, mm-hmm. honestly, which is, you know, if your star player is sick or injured or out of energy, do you have somebody who can fill that role or come in? Or how does the team work differently without, mm-hmm. you know, with with Michael Jordan on the bench, right? And that's something I don't think we think about often enough is, yeah, who's got the energy, who does that? And that was always something I think in Star Trek uh, we, I wondered about is, you know, is, is, is Picard the captain 24 hours a day? Or are we seeing like the, you know, the, the primetime crew and then at night a lot of stuff happens, but it's uh, Joe Wilson's After hour in charge show. or something. I right? love it. I'm, I'm not ready for Star Trek like nights. Now, <laughs> <laughs> you had lower had decks. But yeah, like what's what's the work? Like just if you think about that with division of time even, or like a factory is like, you can't have the factory forming 24 hours a day. You need the shift leader each time. The, you know, you need somebody who's ready for all that. You need that in Star Trek because, you know, Q comes at night sometimes and hangs out with Joe Wilson. We don't know. Um, but we, we just focus <laughs> on the... You know, oh, that's fantastic! Eight-hour shift or whatever, right? Well, like on like a submarine, you'd have like the night crew, right? Yeah, they hot yeah, bunk yeah, no. and this sort of stuff, and like you got like a, perhaps a totally different employee experience. Yeah, so Star Lord needs a nap. Somebody else might need to do the Star Lord thing, right? That's just that's <laughs> yeah. real life, right? You can't work twenty four seven. Sometimes they want us to do that, but you can't do it, right? Gordon, we're academics. We can't admit that we can't work twenty four seven. That there is no way to 
to stop that onslaught. <laughs> some people don't consider but, this work for some reason. Yeah, yeah. But to go back to your question there, Scott, uh, in terms of things you can learn from, from sports, but I think one thing that organizations have, have learned that I wish they didn't learn from sports is a lot of organizations think that they're managing their team like they're in a championship game. And they're like, I need real-time results and I need to make the decision in the fastest possible fashion. Yeah. And I often wonder, like, are you really on a shot clock here? Are you on the 20, 24 second shot clock with your team? Probably not. So maybe, you know, taking a moment to think through things and to consider things more deeply and to be smarter about things is probably a better bet than just saying, well, I need this real time data so that I can make the fastest possible decision that I, that I possibly can. Um, I think being more considerate about what the work load looks like and and when decisions have to be made is i think really really important and there's like there's a big difference for example in like a baseball game versus something like basketball or you know a sport that moves more slowly or a, a sport that moves faster than than another and i think that that a lot of times businesses they look at sports and they're like what everything had in sports is fast and we got to be just as fast and be faster than everybody else and I'm like you, you don't have to necessarily be faster. You just have to make better decisions. Um, but I think that one of the best things you can take away for uh, your workplace, you know, whether for-profit business, nonprofit business, from sports, is actually just defining what performance looks like. Right? How many organizations have you, know, have you work with, and you're just like, what What does good performance look like? Well, if I'm happy, then performance is good. Really. That's that's what it is. But you can you can see <laughs> in every role in a team, you've got a sense of what's the ultimate outcome, what does good performance look like, and a lot of organizations, a lot of uh, orgs don't really know how to define that, and that goes back to you know as IOs, we were like, let's do a job analysis, let's figure out how this works, and let's see how you get those outcomes that you want in your company. You're never you know, it, or in your team, you can't get away with uh, not knowing what people need to do on the, mm -hmm. on the squad. So for example, like one of the things that happens when you get a new coach is all the players are like, oh, that guy, the new coach told me what I had to do. And that's great. And I'm really happy about that because many times they don't know what, to, what they were supposed to do. So explaining that to team members is really important. And then, you know, your analytics, your data they're going to roll up to whatever outcomes you're you're looking at based on um, what you've determined to be variables of interest. So if you're able to do that, uh, you know we know sports teams can do it for the most part, or in some cases they they don't know uh, how to do it. You know if you're if you're the, the New York Knicks, you know they don't, they don't or the Mets, yeah they don't they don't know what they're, doing. they're just <laughs> throwing mean, money everywhere. That's true. But, yeah, you know, I mean like the sports is great because you also get like these negative cases. You can see what the outcome is for people you did not select uh, for mm -hmm. you know you didn't put this guy into the game, etc. But like thinking, uh, going back to what you're saying about moving slow, I, I know that Cole has like some hot opinions on Louisiana where things move about as slow as <laughs> could possibly be. Well, so I, I don't know if you all listen to the podcast, but in our last episode we recorded, which ha isn't out yet, we talked a little bit about Johnny's Pizza in <laughs> Gordon, knowing that you live in Monroe, Louisiana, which is the birthplace of Johnny's Pizza. I just wanted to get 
give you a blank check to write what do you think about Johnny's <laughs> Pizza? Where what, what's what's going on in your world? And and you know, let's pimp ULM a little bit. When I was a kid, it was called NLU, but uh, when you know that goes in the way back machine a little bit. But uh, yeah, what do you think about Johnny's Pizza? Uh, it's definitely <laughs> pizza. That's a positive of it. It's it seems okay. You know, it's not super exciting. Oh, they didn't oh, have this. this is... they, they had to sweep the bayou recently. Oh, yeah. they moved on from sweep the swamp to sweep the bayou, sweep the swamp. or maybe it's sweep the swamp. Which it's, it's the, sweep well, the swamp. It's sweep, the, sweep swamp. the swamp. Yeah, uh, which I felt could have been better. I was very excited by all the crap on it, but it in fact oh did not gel appropriately. I'm dying I think, I think on the inside. Cole has like a nostalgia for this. Like I think he just like grew up with it. Like oh. I think the pizza is okay. Like I, I like yeah. it all right. Um, I've had it at some events. Oh, we've had the, you know, the party pizza pack set up. Yeah, they don't call <laughs> it that either, but that's okay. What what do they you call know? it? The party pan pizza, I think, is how they call it. But anyway, uh, the it's description like I heard of it was they just have half the topics because <laughs> it's for children. Oh, that's such that's a funny. cynical take on giant. I, I'm that's just, what I'm I was told. Here. I'm not. I think it's totally accurate. Sorry. Yeah. So, what is your favorite Monroe eating location if you have one? I like I like the warehouse. I like Waterfront Grill. Riverside Coney Island is very good. There you go. Those and, are good. All good. Obviously, Scott likes Riverside as well. Coney so. Island, yeah, good place. Yeah. So you're you're is redeeming it, yourself, Gordon. You know, I'm not completely depressed now. And sides over here, like I actually have access to good pizza. Like what the hey? Everything outside of New York, New Jersey is illegitimate pizza. Even even Philadelphia, <laughs> it's like I can't. That's not that's not real pizza to me. Well, so, so let's talk about pizza. Sai, where are you located, and what what is the good pizza that's there? Uh, so I'm I'm out in Long Island. Uh, okay. So suburbs of New York City. So you know, really good pizza is in it's in the city. Um, in the city. I'm I'm low class, so I like any dollar slice. So I think. Okay, that's what I was gonna ask. Do you like the dollar slices? Those are always my favorite when I go to Manhattan. Yeah, I I like dollar slices because the the rats like them, and so uh, yeah. I also like them. Uh, but um, you know, if you're in, if you're really looking for some something that's a little more higher quality, uh, Grimaldi's in Brooklyn is a pretty classic place okay. to go. There's a bunch of famous rays, some of which are original famous rays. You know, they're just names of places original. that you can, you can hit up. Uh, and then in Long Island, there's a place called Little Vincent's, if I'm remembering the name correctly, in Huntington. That's kind of a late night favorite. Um, okay. It's kind of a unique, unique pizza. But you know, what's unique about it? Um, I think the type of cheese that they use, you know, I should be better at this because a good friend of mine is a huge pizza snob and like forced <laughs> me to go on a pizza tour of northern New Jersey. He needs to uh, try Johnny's is what I'm hearing. Well, I'm going in two visit. weeks. We the first place I'm hitting up is Johnny's. I will go there before I even get to my destination. You get a daiquiri <laughs> first, though, or just just a... so. OK. Oh, okay. there you we go. Lean into this? There we go. Because yeah. I really <laughs> want to lean into this. OK, okay. so. Best daiquiri place is by the ULM campus. And the best thing to order from there, which I think we can say on the podcast, is called a Smurf Piss. Have you ever had a Smurf Piss, Gordon? No, I, I have not yet. I've got to give it a shot. It sounds like. Okay, it's Oasis. It's right near ULM's campus. Uh, best yeah, drive-through yeah, daiquiris out there. I don't know. Are you a drive-through daiquiri guy? Drive Scott, drive or... through daiquiri. Listen to this. So you get in your car. You get in. There's like the size of your head of daiquiri of liquor essentially and you just drive down the road look people don't understand louisiana is like a different country it's like oh, yeah. there's different laws <laughs> everything that's acceptable other places 
or it is not acceptable other places is acceptable in Louisiana. It's amazing. Liquor at the CVS. I mean, like yeah. it, it's it's I different. I feel like world. they have that other places though, don't they? I, I thought that yeah. was Las Vegas, though. I thought Las Vegas was yeah. the place where you could do things that were not acceptable anywhere else. <laughs> it's just the flashy version of Louisiana, Si. You know oh, Vegas. really? Okay. <laughs> Las Vegas ain't as exciting. There's no bayous in Las Vegas, man. I learned what a bayou right. was. I thought it was like an evil swamp or something. <laughs> but we get our drinking water from a bayou. So hopefully it's fine. Oh, gosh. Oh, Lord. Getting amoeba or something. I think you going to go to the nerdery? Sure. I think Cole, I think you ought to kick us off here because you probably have the best sort of story. Yeah. <clears throat> so I was super excited about talking about this until I read it and then I got sad. But th- so there's this IT worker who's been on sick leave for 15 years and he's suing his employer, which happened to be IBM, I think in, in the UK, to about raising his salary, like giving him raises. Uh, while he's been out of work for for 15 years and the the judge throughout the case and in, in the ruling and before I get to the part that's sad in the ruling the judge was like you should just be happy they've been paying you for 15 years without working this shows an incredible generosity of an employer and the employee kind of whole lattice of benefits that employees or employers are are obligated to provide um the, the thing you find out later on in the article is the guy has actually had, you know, cancer for 15 years and you're like, oh man. And like, and I can imagine had he had cancer and like, let's say they canceled his employee benefits, he probably wouldn't have been able to pay for it because he hasn't been able to work this whole time. I was like, oh man. So I, I, I started to kind of see the other side of the story. The, the headline was a little clickbaity, but I was I was pretty keen on talking about this guy who hasn't been paid in 15 years. <laughs> Did you all get a chance to read this? We skim, I skimmed it. You know, the, the headline doesn't really do the story justice. It doesn't. It, it yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really do uh it doesn't really explain uh this this person's situation. But as a general rule, we know employees are usually, especially in the United States, are are under underpaid, especially given current levels of inflation. That's my usually my hot take that that organizations don't like hearing is I keep telling them like you got to pay people more. The only thing I tell my students is like just ask for more money because I'm pretty sure the company has it. You don't have to be shy about that. Uh, but I'm I mean I'm glad that they were you know you know I'm glad he got he got some payment especially because he if he's been suffering from cancer for the last 15 years he he needs some support beyond just you know we we hope you get better. <laughs> It does. It does feel you read the headline. You're like, oh, God, the balls on this guy is immense. Right. But uh, it does kind of like pose the question, like, what is the obligation of an organization to an employee? Like, how far do those benefits go and for how long? I mean, the employee is there to, uh, you know, do work to, you know, benefit the overall organization and a organization cannot provide all of the life benefits to an employee i like social uh relief and blah 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 how far do those should it extend for the organization yeah well i still think it's a question of what's your social safety net in your country so it, it seems like if somebody's sick uh you know the the country being more involved in it or those benefits um but i think that's actually one of the bigger issues in the u.s overall is stuff like universal health care provided by the government means that you don't have businesses getting involved in complicated 
uh, costly and stuff that they're yeah. not well equipped for. That's the issue with a lot of businesses is that stuff like insurance is a gazillion dollars and it's not really feasible for them to do it. And like a lot of insurances suck a lot based on my experience, even with universities that have relatively good comparison wise. Um, and so to me, that's part of the issue is like businesses become the social security net for so many people, as well as they, they have to make these choices to so what IBM is going to kick the guy with cancer off benefits. Like how bad is that going right. to that's a that's a much worse news story. Like this news story makes it sound like that guy's a bum, but the news story of we fired people with cancer, we did that also looks bad. Um, I, I would prefer that some of this stuff gets taken care of, you know, through taxes, through our government. Then you have businesses have to have these crazy decisions of which they're not equipped for, and their stockholders being beholden to stockholders and also being beholden to the good of society in so many ways is pretty hard. Like, you know, I, capitalism's hard, man. <laughs> I, it's it's so weird that, like, your your health is tied to you having a job, right? Yeah. It, it, well, it's interesting. It this story way. takes place in, in the UK, right? So, you know, in, in the United States, I don't think this guy's getting, getting paid for as long as he's been getting paid. Yeah. But in the UK, it's possible because of some of those social safety net issues. You know, I, I think in the US, you know, he, he, this guy would have been out a long time ago. Uh, and it is it is weird that you 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 know like social safety net stuff is tied in to whether or not you're you're employed. Even now, they're you know we're talking about what was the big controversy in Congress over the last couple of weeks? It's been you know work requirements for uh, for for benefits, right? Ma making sure that people are working in order to um, you know to to get those sorts of benefits, but. To me, it sounds a little bit like homelessness initiatives where the focus is on getting homeless people jobs instead of the actual solution, which is like, they don't have a place to stay. So maybe that's the first solution. Welcome to social, you know, socialism correct today on, uh, you know, Yeah, I was like, well, we really leaned into all these issues today unintentionally because uh, we're not normally a very political podcast. But uh, I look at these things and kind of going back to the original article mm -hmm. i was like what would i like on my most gutsy day what would i have the bravery to request like what's my raise after 15 years request <laughs> on my job you know i don't know do you have anything like that scott what like uh additional benefit i would go after is that what you're asking yeah like what's what's your moonshot ask on the workplace like I don't want one promotion. I want three promotions, you know, oh. <laughs> like, what is it? I don't know. Like if, if I think back at like my career, like I've been lucky enough that five years ago, like things now look way better than I even dreamt of. They looked back then. So yeah. like, I'm, I'm sure that five years from now, hopefully, you know, knock on wood, things are going to look even better than what I anticipate right now. But I, I'm one of these probably rare people that just, I'm incredibly happy. I love what I do. I love the people I work with. We're with like super smart people. Scott's boss has listened to the podcast. Just saying. Like, yeah, my my spot, my boss is right next to me at this next desk. So I got to, <laughs> I can, boss. not really. Not, uh, hey, I don't know. It's There's a lot of like basic things. Like I, I really believe that your experience at the office or in your job largely relates to the five to 10 people around you. If, those, if you can get those people right and they're awesome, including your boss, you're going to have a really good time. If they suck, 
you're going to have a really shitty time. No, no matter how good like the company culture is or the benefits for that matter. Well, it yeah. sounds well, like that. That's like a really good predictor of success in the workplace. Scott, is there a, a good predictor of success in college? Uh-huh. Oh, you went a different direction. You went a different direction. So uh, you two are both professors. Cole, you, you've taught at like TCU, right? You, you I've taught at Louisiana Tech, TCU, and SMU. And I'm teaching, I don't think I've announced this on the podcast, I'm teaching at uh, University of Texas at Dallas this fall. I'm teaching their people analytics course as well. So Ooh. I'll take those. Uh, I was correct that you taught at TCU. <laughs> like, yes, I did. <laughs> I didn't know you'd done it all those places. That's fantastic. But uh, this was a, it's kind of an older study, but that's okay. Meta-analysis of the relationship between college attendance and grades. And what they found is that, uh, pardon me, classroom attendance is the best predictor of grades, better than any other known predictor, including uh, SAT, high school GPA, uh, studying habits, and study skills. Also, mandatory attendance only has a marginal effect. It is positive, but only a marginal effect. But this is like really kind of interesting stuff here that uh, just actually showing up to class and hearing what the professor has to say, the best predictor that they can find beyond mm, SAT, which I just kind of like shorthand say IQ when yeah. you talk about SAT yeah. test. I, I would actually say that it's not. It, it, it's not what the professor says, which I, pr I probably shouldn't say that because, you know, part of one of my jobs is a professor. So I should be like, my words are the most important thing that <laughs> students hear. But I do think that attendance actually um, involves a couple of other things. So like uh, life stability, right, or organizational ability. So students that can oh, show up to class. I I'm sure Gordon has stories like this where you have students that just they can't show up to class and they vote. Sometimes it's because they don't want to. But especially for the type of students I work with, a lot of times it's because they have other life stuff happening. And so sometimes being able to attend class indicates that level of like outside life stability. So there aren't other things that are getting in the way. You're not like doing childcare or doing elder care or, you know, you're not getting sick or you're not having car trouble or you're not having other problems. Working and a so third job. Working a third job. Yeah, exactly. So like that you know, level of attendance can kind of indicate that like, oh, you know, they're able to make it to class consistently, or, or sometimes it could just be that they're organized enough to organize their time that they can actually show up, which is, you know, one of those things that you see a lot in undergrad uh, courses, where students are not able to like manage their time, manage their schedule, figure out when they should go to things. Uh, and if they can do that, then they can manage other things like assignments and study time. And, and so that that's, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was like, oh, that, that seems to be a reason why that predicts so well. Yeah, I, I had a few things I took away from this, Scott. One was friend of the podcast, Marcus Creday was the lead mm -hmm. author on it, which I didn't really notice when we originally decided to talk about this. But there were two other things that I thought were really interesting. One is they 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 kind of alluded to the fact that it didn't seem like SAT scores and class attendance were at all correlated. Mm -hmm. and, and so like they're kind of independent factors of one another, which I, I would have thought the two were related, but I guess they're not. The other is, and if I was looking at this through the lens of like a really mediocre student who's just trying to do the bare minimum to get by, it looks like according to their data, you only need to show up to 60% of classes <laughs> to get... <clears throat> to be a C student on average. And so 
just giving that public service announcement out there to all the mediocre students who are listening, just show up 60% of the time. <laughs> and more often than not, you'll be fine with your, your, you know, your 70 or above. If, all opinions are cold. If you are assessing it correctly is the issue. So there's the, there's the phrase C's get degrees, but C's don't get degrees. If you didn't correctly estimate what you need to get a C. That's that's the problem. Right? You're well, the all I all I heard you say was sixty percent of the time it works every time. Every time. That's that's, that's all I heard. Exactly what that's what that movie was <laughs> referencing when they when they came up with what was that? Um, that was Anchorman, wasn't that was it? Anchorman. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. Anchorman was referencing was Marcus Crede's study Will on a big how to pass college. I, I do remember calling Marcus the Sex Panther. So you know that's a. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he's my former former thing. grad school professor so he'll I, I don't know if he'll appreciate that i'm i'm making jokes about him on podcast but ah, he who cares he's, he's got I, the, 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 the study skills like really surprised me because like you know in of one my own reflection i would show up to class very well my uh, freshman and sophomore year but it wasn't until i figured out how to actually study i was doing a bunch of stupid things honestly but once I figured out how to study, like everything like kind of clicked and came together. Hell, I, I wish I could go back now. I would dominate. I would dominate undergrad. <laughs> Get a degree, ULM. We're always, we're doing that. You want a degree in? They have a big like a uh, water skiing facility right on campus, right? In, yeah, we've got, we have a major water skiing. Done it here. Water skiing. We've got multiple degrees. I, unmanned aircraft, management systems. You want to do drones, man? Agribusiness. Oh, man. Maybe Marketing a degree in I.O. Um, we don't have IO at ULM, but you know, oh, you risk could study leadership service. under Gordon. Yeah, sure. There you go. I, I teach one class in leadership. You can take that a few times. You'll learn something. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Pile up the credits. Back to the social nature. We got one final thing: the uh, Marvel Comics social network analysis. Uh, this is old, but I thought you guys get a kick out of it. Uh, essentially, this guy created the Marvel comic universe through co co occurrence in uh comic books not uh the movies as it were uh they use python and his rather antiquated package but that's okay but a it's just amazing how many characters there are how many characters there are in the in the entire marvel universe and they actually reduce that uh, network based on uh, degree you know number of connections between folks they found overall that uh spider-man captain america and thor had three big chunks of the network but uh, the biggest influencer, the highest connector, biggest connector connected to different groups was the Beast because of their link between the X-Men and the Avengers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty, pretty cool finding. Pretty cool finding. Is expected. Is it? Well, the Beast is part of one of the best Avenger teams, man. He should be an Avenger. He doesn't need to be on the X-Men. <laughs> it's, it's common knowledge to me. Gordon coming with the people. hot takes. Drafted by the wrong team. You know, this is so funny because Gordon and I were talking about how some comic fans were looking at Avengers, like runs of Avengers, and like rating them as their favorite uh, when they were ignoring uh, the one with, with Beast, actually, where when he started. And Beast is also a part of like one of the better X-Men spinoff teams, X-Factor, right? So he's he's in a lot of stuff. The really interesting thing in that in that study actually is like they wanted to look at time. And, uh, it, you know, some characters like The Thing and Spider-Man were in these comics that were um, kind of like 
ones where they're team up books like Marvel team up or Marvel two and one. So it would have been interesting to see what it looked like, what the network looks like over time during the runs of those comics, because I think the thing and Spider-Man might've gained a little bit on beast during those, during those time periods when that comic was getting published. It'd be interesting if they did this during the actual movies. I know this was during the comic books, um, but yeah, it's essentially updated for today's audience as well. Uh, during the pandemic, I endeavored in a project to map the entire Star Trek universe, at least the first uh, season of each uh, uh, series and see how they interconnected. And the most important node in the network, I had to, in fact, it was so important that I had to take it out, was a uh, computer. <laughs> Everyone pings the computer and it tied the yeah. entire network together. But I think I think we're kind of converging on that now. Like everyone types into chat GPT and Google and what have you. That's our version of computer. You want to know how out of touch I am with this article? I was <laughs> I was reading through it and in one of the charts it had two characters which I didn't know at the time. I thought there were one that were close together it was Human Torch and Thing and I read it as human torch thing and i was like i don't remember that character <laughs> what, what's your favorite character uh cole out of like all of the see i didn't even i'll be honest until i read this article i didn't know the two universes were related i i used to love x-men and i i have like the avengers series i didn't know they were the same universe <laughs> um and so i was like wolverine from the yeah. x-men i always thought he was really cool when i was a kid and then i i am probably on the avengers i do kind of like the humor behind groot groot is uh groot's a good one he's a good character do you just say Groot? Is is that his exactly? Bit, right? Oh, okay. It's I like, like you can't beat it. He's got a tagline. And he's sticking with it. <laughs> I've always yeah. been a Silver Surfer guy. I like the Silver Surfer. Seems like a, like. Well, a... Didn't they make him a villain later though? He's like a quasi villain, right? He starts yeah. as a villain because he's working with like a a character called Galactus uh, that eats planets and uh, eventually becomes a good guy. So it's Galactus, kind of, but not most of the time. Well, Gordon, I actually had one more one more thing for you because um, we we had talked about you you had a, you published an article with Sai about gig work and mm -hmm. how it was related to the ASA or the attraction selection attrition framework, and I just, I just had a question and I was curious about you guys' perspectives on this. There's been this kind of meta trend recently about deconstructing jobs and work and bringing it down to just a skill-based level and yes. gig work is cited as a continuation of that trend in relationship and my my viewpoint on this and we've talked about it on the podcast before is that i feel like that trend of like deconstructing work is actually kind of like unhumanistic in the sense that people derive a lot of purpose and meaning and continuity in their lives from jobs and so I'm wondering through your research on gig work, have you seen that? Is gig work less or more humanistic in the, in the sense of what's going on? And I don't know, what are your reactions to that kind of framing of the question? I'd agree overall. You know, I do think this is part of the meta trend from all the way back to scientific management and Taylorism, right? The whole idea back then was you had these craft workers and they do make one item, they make the whole thing, they're experts um, and various efficiency experts like Taylor, breaking it down into very easy 
things that anybody can, you know, anyone can do uh, with Ford Motors kind of breaking that up the most. Um, I think gig has brought in another level of that because one, we don't need local experts anymore. We can just, uh, you know, if you look at Amazon Mechanical Turk, you have people that can translate stuff. You need a trans, you don't need a great translator. You just need some dude on MTurk that kind of knows French to take care of it for you. Um, and I think it's true for a lot of other stuff too. Now you've got so many people competing and how do you build a website or how do you create a code or how do you create a marketing campaign? Um, and so it both reduces the amount of potential uh, value of these specialized skills, but also makes it so now you're competing with, even if you have the specialized skills, you're competing with a whole host of other people. Um, especially because some content, it doesn't have to be good. It has to be acceptable, um, which I think you see for stuff like uh, BuzzFeed is actually, you know, one Pulitzers and stuff. Um, but the BuzzFeed setup of 10 of this thing or optimization of search has meant you can kind of use stuff like chat GPT to just uh, go out with content that is good enough that shows up high on Google, not that it's great content. Um, and so I think GigWorks certainly has that potential to really, you know, dehumanize work in various ways. Uh, certainly there's the benefits of you can work remotely a lot easier than the past. So there's people that, you know, they're making their life through gig work when before they didn't really have a good option. Um, and so I think it's a complicated issue. I do think their employees really, and probably should get appropriate benefits. And that's part of the value of gig is if we pretend someone's not a real full-time employee, we don't have to pay their insurance. We don't have to, we don't have to care when they get an injury and can't work for 15 years. Uh, you know, you just leave them in the gig pool and don't worry about it. Um, so I, I do think there's definitely an issue with that. It's not, again, it's not surprising ultimately that technology advances here have led to the, uh, you know, de-skilling work in many ways or reducing the amount that skill has that. You see that right now with the writer's strike, right? What do we do? Well, maybe chat GPT can write, you know, SNL for us <laughs> and stuff like that. Again, the tech to try to replace the unique elements that give labor power. Yeah, just to bring that back to the, to the model that we proposed, um, one of the things that, one of the reasons that we liked bringing in this organizing piece is because gig workers are organizing and the fact is that many things that we take for granted now came about through, not because organizations were like, oh, we want to give this to you, but through labor organizing. I mean, a weekend doesn't exist without labor organizing. 40-hour work week doesn't the band, exist. The weekend side. Well, of course. If you're a gig worker, you no weekend for you, right? Uh, so all of those things have to be negotiated and, you know, labor you you know, for a long first. time. Uh, the Hashtag swung. ban the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I, I mean the singer, not the actress. I like the there singer too. There we go. I, I'm I just trying to trying to solid save. save. <laughs> solid save. <laughs> well, Sai yeah. Gordon, it has been an absolute pleasure talking. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, super happy about your uh, new book, and uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you all. Yeah, yeah. thank you all so time. much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, happy to be here.
Well, you've been listening to Direction Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and two guests today, Gordon Schmidt and Sai Islam. Thanks for joining us, guys. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.